I have enjoyed hearing from many of you over the course of our study on heaven, chapters 21 and now today into chapter 22. It's been especially encouraging to know that young people are listening, and I've gotten a few comments uh, back uh, from parents, and that's especially encouraging and thrilling to know that young people are engaged in this study. Uh, one of our moms wrote me about their nine-year-old son, Will is his name. He was home last Sunday with a 102 fever. She wrote me saying, my husband set up the computer so that we could listen to your sermon live on the internet. Towards the end of the sermon, you were listing bad things that would not be found in heaven. And my son was two steps ahead of you. As you said, no more pain, no more suffering. And he said, no more homework. (laughs) She wrote, I guess you forgot that one. And she added a P.S. Will has informed me you can share this with the congregation next Sunday, which I am now doing. Thank you, Will. You're exactly right. Uh, one Sunday school teacher wrote me a few weeks ago. She's been teaching her five-year-old class on the subject of heaven uh, as well. And she decided to test them a couple of weeks ago about how to get into heaven. And so she asked them a series of questions. She said, if I sold my, my house and my car, had a big garage sale, and gave all the money to the church... Would that get me into heaven? And all the five-year-olds said, no. She said, well, if I cleaned the church every day and mowed the church lawn and kept everything neat and tidy, would that get me into heaven? Again, the answer was a resounding no. She wrote, I was starting to smile. They They were getting this. She went on, if I was kind to animals and gave candy to all the children I met and loved my husband, is that what I've got to do to get into heaven? And they all shouted, no. She wrote now that she was bursting with pride. They were learning so well. And she asked, well then, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And one five-year-old boy shouted, you got to be dead. (laughs) Well, he's right, you know. He's right. Well, as we go back to the vision of John... We're given a few more descriptive phrases of this place called heaven. Heaven, as we have learned, is a, is a word or term for the eternal state, which literally incorporates the newly created universe, the city of gold, which is the Father's house, and a new earth. All of this, all of this heaven is ours to enjoy in the glorious presence of God forever. The truth is, the more you study the texts of the eternal state and the descriptions we've been given, the greater the mystery, isn't it? It's as mysterious to me in many ways as it was when we began. In fact, there are more questions in my mind now than there were before we got to Revelation chapter 21 about this new world. And what a world it is. It's a world that staggers our imaginations and leads us to want to know, frankly, a lot more than we're given. And that's good. In fact, that pursuit is spiritually healthy. One British author from the 1800s wrote it this way. He said, the man who's about to sail for New Zealand as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, its ways, its customs. It would be strange indeed to not desire information about your new abode. Now surely, since we plan to dwell forever in that heavenly country, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can about it and become acquainted with our eternal home. 
God evidently wants us to think about it. In fact, it's almost as if he wants to blow our minds about it and, and, and literally stagger our imagination. We've encountered a house, the Father's house, that makes Mount Everest look like a little foothill. We've been given the colors of gemstones as large as freight trains. Uh, we have seen pearls through the descriptive phrases that fill stadiums. We've been struck by the pageantry of the parade of nations that we looked at in our last study as the opening ceremony of heaven is taking place. We, we've had difficulty even at the very beginning viewing the city that descends as a sparkling, flawless diamond reflecting and refracting the brilliant light coming from God himself. In fact, we've learned that gold is just so common. In fact, it's one of the the more common elements inside this city of gold. Just common stuff. Reminds me of the story of the man, you know, all the legends of people who go to heaven and get to the gate. Well, this is one about a man who got there and the angels are stationed at the gate and they said, I'm sorry, you can't come in here with that. And he said, well, why not? He said, he said, as he strained at the handle of this bulging suitcase, he said, I've worked all my life for this, and I'm sure it'll be okay. So the angels conferenced together a little bit, and they said to him, well, we'll let you, but first you've got to open it up and let us see what it is. And so he laid his suitcase down, and he opened it up, and he displayed for them that his suitcase was filled with gold bars, solid gold bars. The angels looked at each other somewhat puzzled and then said, finally agreeing, okay, I, you can go on in with it. And as the man left, struggling with his suitcase, one angel said to the other, imagine that this man is intent on bringing into heaven a suitcase full of pavement. John has informed us that the streets are of gold. Keep that in mind, would you? It's a reminder to me as we're tempted to dedicate the best of our energy and the best of our planning and the best of our hopes and the best of our dreams to the simple acquisition of something which in heaven will be nothing more than pavement. Asphalt. Now in John's vision in chapter 22, he gives us several final snapshots of the eternal city. He moves us deeper as it were, into the Father's house. And we discover that it is in, in, in many ways a beautiful garden, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. In fact, let me simply read verses 1 to 5. You follow along as I read. Then this angelic tour guide showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Now, don't miss this. The beginning of human history was a story of paradise lost. And the end of human history, as the eternal state is about to begin, is a story of paradise regained. 
Human history began in a garden with a river flowing through it and a tree of life. History wraps up with a garden and a river running through it and a tree of life. Now, don't be mistaken. This isn't some kind of you know, new age circle of life. It's actually more like a spiral. Because the paradise of Eden is only a fraction of what the paradise of heaven will be like. The first paradise was lost because of sin. The eternal paradise is won again for us, even greater and grander than ever because of our Savior. And what a paradise it is. John's already shown us it's a city with gemstone foundations and walls of jasper and gates of pearl and streets of gold. And now he takes us inside and shows us some things that we can more easily connect with, and yet they're going to be very unique as he shows us water, a river, trees, fruit. So let's take a look here as we tour. I'm going to give you uh, three or four snapshots of John's vision. And under each snapshot, we could just write a little caption, a very simple caption taken from John's photographic uh, word pictures of heaven. The first caption would be, uh, the river of life is flowing forever. Back in verse 1, John is shown by his angelic guide, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God. Now, John is struck by two observations. The river's color, or its sight, and the river's source. He tells us here that the river was as clear as crystallos. That Greek word gives us our transliterated word, crystal. It, it's a word that refers to that sparkling, shimmering brightness that, that seems to John to be like light refracting off a flawless diamond. And we've already seen this description as, he, as he's at a loss for words to speak of the brilliance and the light reflecting everywhere. And now you look at the river... This river, and he says, it's the same thing. It's crystal clear. It's reflecting, and it's brilliant light as it flows along. John also notes that it originates with the throne of God and of the Lamb, the latter part of verse 1. Now, in the Garden of Eden, a river flowed through it. In the Millennial Kingdom, a river will flow through the New Jerusalem, and it will, it will come from the Temple Mount. But here in the Eternal City, the the river is literally flowing from the throne of God. What that means is it is not flowing up to and through the throne of God. The throne of God is its source. It is flowing from it, which, which in, lets us know then that God is forever creating it. He is forever creating the river that flows, and I believe it will break as well into tributaries flowing north, south, east, and west. Uh, the systems of our planet, much like today, there will be evaporation, and, and, but he continually creates it. It is the symbol of our everlasting life. David the psalmist predicted centuries earlier that, that this river, there would be a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Joel the prophet said there will be a fountain flowing out of the house of God. So these are literal waters. It's, it's literal wet H2O. Yet the nature and, and, and quality of it is something we've never seen before. Just as the city is literal, there are literal elements 
But, but it's, a, it's a nature and quality of something that we've never seen before. Can you imagine this grand river coming from the throne of God? Maybe you've stood at the banks of a great river. Maybe the mighty Mississippi or the Colorado or some of you have traveled and you've seen the Nile or the Ganges. And there's, it's awe-inspiring to see the massive river running by and maybe hearing it as it rushes over rapids and certainly the sound of a waterfall as perhaps it drops several feet into the air to a level below. Now, if my understanding of this pyramidal structure of the Father's house is correct with its 12 floors, each one at perhaps a mile high, what you would have then is a river traveling from the throne of God, which I believe would be at the top level. It would run through the city and then drop in a massive waterfall, the roar of it heard for miles around, and then it would flow through the garden, and then it would drop again until finally it breaks perhaps into four tributaries, as in the Garden of Eden, and heads out of each gate into the new earth. All the while, it's this flowing, shimmering, glimmering, cascading, bright, sparkling River as the lights of the gems that are the foundations of each level sparkle off of it. And as the light of the golden hue of the city sparkles off of this. This will be, this, this one thing, this, this one element will be spectacular. I, I can't describe it. And what little we've been given at least informs us that it, it's amazing. God has created a place for his beloved and we will be enraptured by the, by the beauty of this, this new paradise. People travel for miles around to, to go to a nature preserve or to see a waterfall or a national park. God's people will be living in the midst of the most beautiful scenery imaginable. Now John informs us that this river not only has literal properties, but it has symbolic meaning. He calls it the river of the water. Of life, It symbolizes life. In other words, the river flowing from the throne of God will symbolize eternal life which originates in the person of God. And the promise delivered by God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who said, if you come to me and drink of the water that I give you, you will have rivers of water flowing out of you. In other words, you're going to have eternal life, John chapter 4. And here it's, it's typified. It, it's literal. It's something we can see, and yet it symbolizes that we on earth at some point in our lives said, we want to drink of the gospel. We want to accept the water that Jesus Christ gives us, his gift to us, and we drank. And now we will see the river which symbolizes our everlasting security here as it rushes through the eternal city. There is a river Flowing forever. Secondly, there is a tree of life flourishing forever. Look at verse 2. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Now stop a moment. Doesn't that object sound familiar? The tree of life appeared. Perhaps you remember in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were barred from eating the fruit of this tree. God 
assigned cherubim with their flaming swords. As, as Adam and Eve are exiled, they are barred from reaching out for this fruit which would have brought them immortality in the midst of their sin. So it is, in fact, a, a gracious act of God's protection, knowing atonement will come. But there are no cherubim here in Revelation chapter 22. In paradise regained, there is an invitation to come. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, the Bible has already promised that the beloved will one day eat from the tree of life which is in the garden of God, the paradise of God. Now perhaps you've noticed John uses a singular word translated tree here in verse 2. Greek scholars take this as a collective singular, given the fact that John tells us in this verse, if you'll notice, that they are located on both sides of the river. This is, a, this is then a collective singular. It is one species of tree, and yet there are many of them on either side, both sides of, of the river, lining, as it were, the river of life as it moves throughout the eternal city. You don't have then even a, a, a row of trees. What you have then with this fruit is, is effectively an orchard. But, but what an interesting tree. Would you notice that John describes it as that tree that bears in verse 2, 12 different kinds of fruit every single month. So not just one tree, not just a row of trees, not just an orchard, but trees in that orchard that are always bearing fruit. And the fruit is, is, is always ripe. What kind of fruit will it be? Your favorite. I'm fairly confident. Well, we don't know for sure. It could be peaches. It could be apples. It could be dates, plums. It could be figs. For you Floridians, it could be guava, banana. But 12 kinds every month. In fact, as I studied men who did language work here, the Greek scholars, they're not unanimous in their understanding of this. It could be 12 different kinds each month. So you'd have 12 each year. Or perhaps it's 12 different fruit on each tree, which could give you the potential of 144 different fruit throughout the year. Each month, that's right, we're going to have months which imply years. Henry Morris, a believing scientist, wrote this in his commentary. He said, The fact that months are identified indicates that the orbital and rotational motions of the earth will go on in the new creation as God established them in the very beginning, and the moon likewise will continue orbiting around the earth. Now, we've already been told we don't need the moon or sun in the celestial city. We aren't told they don't exist. The continuity between the old creation and the new would indicate sun and moon, even seasons, orbiting moons and suns. Be that as it may, many things here are going to be remarkably different and unusual. Perhaps only this species of tree will symbolize eternal life. That seems to be the implication. And they're going to bear a crop of fresh fruit forever and Based on an earlier promise, we're going to be able to eat from the tree of life, which allows us then to know that we're going to have mouths to eat the fruit. We're, we're going to have tongues and taste buds to savor the fruit. And, and I would certainly hope we have teeth to chew the fruit. 
I don't ever want to use a juicer. Do you? I don't want strained peaches. I want to bite into it. I want to bite into that crisp apple. Now, John also tells us in verse 2 that the leaves of the tree of life are symbolic. They are for the healing of the nations. Now, the word for healing is the word therapia, which gives us our word therapy. Why would the nations, why would the peoples of the Father's house, why would that one new nation now that is assembled, why would, why would they need healing if all evil and all sin has been eliminated? Well, well John is, is not telling us that there would be illness in the new earth. In fact, he's actually emphasizing that this is the permanent condition of the beloved reflected in the presence of this evergreen. This species, which bears fruit, whose leaves never fall off. So the leaves of the tree symbolize the the fact that now in the kingdom of heaven, there is perpetual refreshment, and the river of life and and the trees would would imply perpetual food for enjoyment, uh, perpetual healing, as it were. There, There is no room for any disease ever here. This is literally therapy for The people, the redeemed of of this new paradise, regained. That word therapy is a comprehensive concept that incorporates healing that is mental, emotional, spiritual, physical. It incorporates it all. The, The beloved will be in every way healed forever. That's what he's saying. Think of what that means emotionally. No more wounds. No more sorrow. No more haunting dreams or dashed hopes. No more regrets. Think of what that means spiritually. No more failure. No more confusion. No more struggle with imperfections. No more wishing you could serve better, more faithfully. No no more more resisting, no more battling with the flesh and the world and the devil. Think of what this means physically. We, We can more easily understand this. John informs us that the presence of this tree is God's way of saying forever there is no possibility of ever any illness again of any kind. Johnny Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic, many of you are familiar with her ministry, told of speaking to a class of mentally handicapped Christians. They thought it was great when she said she was going to get a new body. But when she added, pointing to them, and you are going to get new minds, They broke out into applause. They understood something of their limitation and their frustration. And heaven for them offered unique healing. Johnny went on and wrote a little bit more of her testimony. She said, I can still hardly believe it that I, with shriveled, bent fingers, gnarled knees, No feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. She asks, can you imagine the hope this gives someone like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, 
or who has uh, multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives to someone struggling with manic depression. No other religion, no other philosophy literally promises new bodies, new hearts, new emotions, and new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible promise. Beloved, this tree is going to symbolize the fact that all of the hurts of humanity are forever healed. Forever healed. The truth is we've never known, we have never known one moment of this. On your best day, your best hour, your best minute, you've never experienced all of this. That first breath you took in the delivery room or in the back seat if your dad didn't drive fast enough or wherever, that, that was pierced followed up quickly by a cry, the shock of your entrance into the world. And ever since that time till the day you die, you will never experience one moment of perfect peace, of perfect health, perfect security, perfect freedom, perfect satisfaction, and certainly not perfect sinlessness, but you will experience it here as paradise is regained. You see, there's a river of life flowing forever. There's a tree of life, an orchard flourishing with fruit forever. Thirdly, John sees for us that there is a curse finished forever. In verse 3, he reminds us again, we've already looked at this, But he wants us to know it again. So he says it again. There will no longer be any curse. How? For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. This is powerful. The unity and equality of God the Father and God the Son is expressed here. They occupy the same throne and equality. The place of primary dominion, primary authority, primary sovereignty is jointly held perhaps expressed with a river symbolizing the Holy Spirit. We're not sure. But to the utter delight of the redeemed, we're going to discover that he delegates the right to rule to us as, as well. But it's interesting to me as I was reading this, of all of the titles, we would expect the Father to be referenced with the term or title God. Uh, But Jesus Christ, God the Son, there are a lot of titles we could use for him here as he speaks of the splendor of of heaven. And yet he's called, notice again, the Lamb. The Lamb. And I wondered. But then as I studied it, it, it easily came to fit perfectly this context. The curse, he says, is gone forever. How? By virtue of Christ who became for us a curse. The curse in the Garden of Eden and and all those things that came as a result of it are atoned for in the life of the believer by the Lamb of God. So it fits perfectly. In fact, you think about this, uh, the curse in the Garden of Eden brought at least four things into being that had not existed before they sinned. Sorrow, pain, toil, 
and death. And think of how Christ dealt with each of them. He was a man of what? Sorrows. Acquainted with what? Grief. He carried our griefs and our sorrows away. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. Christ sweat. He toiled for our redemption. In fact, he sweat great drops of blood and agony over the curse that he would become for us. Luke 22, 44. He suffered pain. The pain of existence and certainly the pain of crucifixion. In fact, it's interesting when you consider the fact that they stripped him naked. Uh, the only thing he's wearing is a crown which represents the curse. A crown of what? Thorns. And he suffered not only the sorrow of tears and strong crying, Hebrews 5, 7, but he suffered death. Death so that we could be given life. And so it fits. We have here the Lamb. And in this scene of great joy and great glory, we're reminded that we're there because he came here. The glory of heaven is ours because of the curse-shattering, curse-destroying work of Christ's atonement as the one who came to die for our sins. It was, you know, when I started this sermon, the outline I had developed for this particular point had the word forgotten. The curse is forgotten forever. But the more I studied it, the more I needed to change that word to the word finished. It occurred to me that John's description here is once again intended to remind us of the cross. We are to remember, which will remind us of the curse. But in our glorified perspective, we will glory in his grace and his atoning work. It won't bring regret. It will bring great joy. For we will see the lamb slain on our behalf. And you remember when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to the To the disciples and the missing disciple, we call him Doubting Thomas. Aren't you glad that there was a doubting disciple? Because we all can identify, can't we? But he said, this thing's pretty much wrapped up for me. Unless I can see the one you say has resurrected and see his wounds. And so you remember in John chapter 27, Christ in in his glory but condescending humility appeared again at the upper room. And he said to Thomas. See here, my hands and feet. In other words, inspect me. This lets us know that Jesus Christ retained for all of eternity the scars of his atoning work in his hands and feet. What a sight that will only increase our love for him and our joy in his grace. We will never then forget how and why we gained entrance into the heavenly state. We are there because he came here. The wounds of Christ will be eternal reminders that Christ became for us the curse, Galatians 3.13, so that he could abolish the curse. You could then understand it that he finished off the curse forever. And because the curse is gone and we are now like Christ, We will be able to see his glory in our glorified state. In fact, John adds in verse 4, and they will see his face. In other words, in our glorified state, John writes here that we'll have the ability to see the face of God. 
Now stay with me for a moment here. Since God is spirit, we're not told exactly what we will see when we see his face. The Bible doesn't tell us if we'll see physical expressions or forms of the Father and or the Spirit. We will either see some form that God the Father chooses to show us of his glory, or we will simply be looking into the face of our glorified Savior, Jesus Christ, God the Son, in that fulfillment, I believe, of what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Only that will be different than what he showed to those disciples because now it is the full expression of his glory and his brilliance. And we will be able to see that. We will see in his face God, for he is God. He is the image of the invisible glory of God. We do know this. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran, didn't they? And they hid. They hid from God. Here we will see Christ and literally be able to run to him. We will experience greater, more intimate fellowship than the fellowship of God's physical manifestation to Adam, whatever form that was. We'll have greater intimacy and the ability to partake in his glory as we see him than even Moses did who was only allowed to see the hinder part of his glory. And because of seeing that much, his face glowed for months. We will see and fellowship with that brilliant, resplendent one whose light came from the sky and blinded the apostle Paul. We in our glorified state will be able to gaze into the face of God. I believe is the visible expression mediated to us by the glorious face of our glorified, redeemed Savior, Jesus Christ. We will see Christ face to face in all his glory. Charles Spurgeon preached on this one phrase. Seeing Christ face to face, he said, implied five things. Certain salvation from him, clear knowledge of him, Conscious favor with him, close fellowship beside him, and complete transformation like him. The curse of Eden is overturned. The curse is finished off forever. No more thorns, thistles, floods, fires, sorrows, pain, sin, separation, guilt, grief, Death. Oh, and by the way, no more homework. <laughs> Would you notice quickly that John writes in verse 4 that his name will be on their foreheads? Those of us who reign as he comes to the end of verse 5, we're going to reign with him forever and ever. He says that our names will be on his forehead. This might be some form of marking on the beloved just as the Antichrist tried to imitate the authority and ownership of God by marking his followers, more than likely tattooing them on their hand or forehead. However, it might be, and there is some disagreement here, and again, we're given a little bit, but not enough. It might be an inscription that you would have on a regal crown, there at the section of the crown that would cover your forehead as we co-reign with him could be a reference to the turban or crown worn by Aaron, the high priest. And he had a, 
he had a, a, a golden plate that hung from it down, covering his forehead with inscription upon it. What we do know is what is inscribed upon it. His name. He has many names. We're not sure which name. But his name, which implies ownership. We belong to him. It implies service. We will represent him. It implies royalty. We will reign with him. And that will last forever. So, because God wants us to be marked with the truth of heaven and forever, marking our lives now, keep this perspective in mind. So so that no matter how painful life is for you now, it's not forever. No matter how difficult your disabilities are, they are not forever. No matter how great your struggle is with yourself... Your flesh, the world, the devil, it's not forever. See, there is a sparkling river flowing forever that speaks of your eternal life. There there is a, a forest of trees, an orchard flourishing with fruit forever, which speaks to your eternal healing. And and there is a curse that is all but forgotten, except for That which remains as visible scars our Savior has chosen to bear forever. The only scars in heaven will be His. And because of Him, our joy and excitement and discovery and anticipation and gratitude and praise and singing and service and fellowship and royal reigning with with Him will last and will last forever. And our brief years Our brief years are nothing compared to forever. How long is forever? Well, imagine it this way, and I close with this. Imagine the earth, as we know it, converted into a solid steel ball, all the way to its very core. So the circumference of our earth and its crust of some 25,000 miles all the way down to its solid or its, or its inner core, which is now molten, but then it will be converted. All of Earth is now a solid steel planet. Now imagine one little sparrow is released to land on planet Earth where he proceeds to sharpen his beak on this planet of solid steel and then he's taken away. One million years later, he's released again, and he comes and he sharpens his beak on this solid planet of steel, and then he's taken away. A million years later, now three million years have gone by, and he's sharpened his beak the third time. By the time that little sparrow sharpens his beak enough times to wear down this planet to the size of a BB, forever will have just begun. Paradise regained will have just been introduced and our lives in the presence of and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and perhaps a myriad of ways they express themselves to us along with all the redeemed, along with all of the angelic hosts 
of heaven in this glorious place will have just begun and it will only then begin and it will go on forever. So in light of what we know about there, let's have lives marked by him here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the briefest of descriptions that yield a hundred more questions. We can't even, we can't even figure out this river. We, we can't fully grasp what it would mean for a tree to bear fruit like this. We can't imagine the physical dimensions and the materials that make it up. And that's the easy part. We can't imagine seeing you in all your glory face to face. But this is your promise to us. And we, by faith, believe. And I hope, Lord, long just a little more for the eternal state of glory with all its perfections and beauty and fellowship and intimacy with you and with the redeemed that we will come to know over the course of eternity. My friend, if, if you don't know Christ personally, you've never received him, you've never, you've never taken a drink of the gospel, it's freely offered. If you know enough of the gospel, you can say, Lord, I, I accept you now. I repent of my sin and I turn to you and I've waited too long, but would you allow me for the rest of my life to, to seek to glorify you? You can do that right now. Don't leave until you're sure you're headed for this glorious city, paradise regained the garden of God, a new earth and universe. Father, thank you again. May our lives reflect a desire to see you pleased now because we'll surely long for that and enjoy your good pleasure in that day. Help us as a church family to remember why we're here, to invite all we meet to drink, to come to know Christ, to grow up in Christ, to learn of Christ, for we shall soon see you, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for that promise. May it make a difference in our practice. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.